this morning we're, we're going to conclude our sermon series on the book of Ruth. And for those of you who've not been here for the, the early parts of the series, I mean, just quick summary. Ruth is the story actually of a woman named Naomi, who's really the center of the story. She's an Israelite woman who has lost everything. Her husband, her adult sons, her land. And she really believes God is absolutely against her. And in the midst of her pain and loss, God uses an unlikely person, Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law and a relative of her husband named Boaz to bring redemption and restoration into her life. And it's a story of how God loves and redeems his people. That's what this book is about. So as we read this last chapter together, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, 
has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Father, we ask that you would send your spirit here this morning and meet us. Help us to have our eyes open, our ears unstopped. Give us your spirit so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in your power. And draw near to us as we draw near to you today, Lord. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I'm pretty certain we all love stories that surprise us. Stories that have that clever plot twist which takes the narrative to kind of another level. And I remember the first time I experienced this. I was in fifth grade when The Empire Strikes Back opened in theaters. I begged my parents to let me go watch this with my friends on opening weekend, and we were all so excited to see the sequel. And we got our popcorn, we settled into our seats, and I tell you, it did not disappoint, because, you know, back then we didn't have, like, you know, videos you could watch later or watch a week later at home. And I will make the argument, it is probably the best of the first three Star Wars movies, okay? It's a big claim. And the reason why, because it has the best character development, okay? It introduced us to Yoda, come on, who trains Luke Skywalker to be the Jedi Knight, and of course that climactic scene, the lightsaber duel between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, and you just knew this was the unavoidable climax, the confrontation. And as Luke is being overwhelmed by Darth Vader, he, Vader begins to encourage him to embrace the dark side. And then it happened. Darth Vader, whom Luke believed murdered his father, reveals that he is his father. The moment my 10-year-old mind was blown. <laughs> it was not what I was expecting. I mean, I got to school on Monday. This is all anyone was talking about at recess and at lunch. Did you see Empire Strikes Back? I mean, how's this going to end? Did you know it was going to be? Uh, well, everything turned out okay, and we're going to have to wait three years to find out. <laughs> you know, and we come to the end of the book of Ruth. And if you're following the story, you cannot help be surprised by how this book ends. Okay? Because last week we were left at a cliffhanger. Ruth had asked Boaz to marry her and redeem Naomi, her mother-in-law, land. I mean, it was shocking, courageous, bold move by Ruth. She was so committed to Naomi, she was willing to risk her own happiness to ensure her mother-in-law, Naomi, was cared for. And Boaz said in chapter 3, verse 11, I will do for you all that you ask. How's this story going to end? Will it all work out? How can the pain and loss of all of their past be redeemed? And maybe you read this and you feel like it's a letdown. You know, kind of this Disney-esque ending, love, marriage, a child, nuclear family, source of happiness. 
And, but that's not what the story is focusing on. The focus is not on Ruth and Boaz's life together. Did you notice that? I'm not saying that's not a wonderful aspect of this story about how their relationship worked out. But Boaz and Ruth living happily ever after is not the point of the book of Ruth. We're being taught how God's covenant love, his hesed love, works to bring about redemption and restoration. And this kind of committed love that redeems, that brings about healing, it goes far deeper than some momentary happiness beyond some familiar bliss. I mean, remember Naomi and Ruth both had marriages that ended tragically. They understand it can all be gone in a moment because of illness or of sin or for whatever reason. They're both widows, destitute, trying to survive. They understand suffering. Real redemption has to go deeper. It has to involve resurrection. Anything less than that always feels so temporary. And all throughout this book, we've gotten hints, rumors, suggestions of something big coming. And we see this kind of resurrection in Naomi's life. God's hidden hand, his providential care has been at work throughout this story. Because in a world that is shaped by God's covenant love, redemption happens. And for people who embrace God's love, his hesed love who accepted by faith, we begin to realize at at times God uses us to be a source of redemption. Sometimes we're the ones, we are always the ones being redeemed when we begin to trust him. But God's hesed love, his covenant love, his faithfulness redeems, restores, and even resurrects. So let's take a look at how this happens in the rest of the book. First of all, I want to look at the redemption for Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. These are the names that we haven't seen since chapter 1 because as chapter 3 ends with Boaz committing to this package deal of Ruth redeeming the land and Naomi, we begin chapter 4 with this long conversation he's having here with the elders and with this other dude in verses 1 to 8. And the background to all of this is God actually established the law to care for those who have fallen on hard times financially in the land of Israel. So if you go to Leviticus 25, in verse 25 it says this, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So if you have that in the back of your mind this conversation actually begins to make a lot more sense. Because what has likely happened, and this is speculation on my part because we don't know the details here, but probably during the famine that took place 10 years ago, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, likely mortgaged the land to provide for the family as a last resort. But they remained in poverty. They could not sustain themselves in the land because the famine, the economic situation was so severe. So they end up in Moab to find food where eventually Elimelech dies. And then Naomi returns with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to Bethlehem in chapter 1. And they can't redeem the land. And the question is, how do you get the land back into the family? Both her, her sons have died. And the point is, a relative has to redeem it. 
the relative at great cost himself would pay to settle the debt and redeem the land to Elimelech's family. This is what Boaz is attempting to do, but he is saying there's a closer relative who has the first right of refusal. You got it? So this is what's going on. So Boaz has to do some wheeling and some dealing to get this guy to give his rights to Boaz. And kind of does a reverse bait and switch thing, you know. He says, hey, you, um, you're the kinsman redeemer for Naomi, you know, and for her brother Elimelech. And he's asking him, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to redeem as Leviticus 25, 25 says? And the guy's thinking, okay, well, there's an older widow, Naomi, you know, I can redeem the land, and I know she can't have any more children, and over time maybe this land will just end up in our estate at little cost because she has no other living descendants who can take the land. My real estate portfolio is just going to grow a little bit. And he's like, yeah, I think I'll do that. And then Boaz says, oh, yeah, and by the way, you also have to take Ruth the Moabite. And the guy's like, wait, I can't do that. Why not? Because now... He's just going to be a caretaker, okay? It would be costly. And if Ruth has a child, a son, that land goes to him. That land goes back to Elimelech's family. All he did was lay out all this money in order to help his brother-in-law. And he says, you know, this is too much for me. It's his right to say no. You know, he's not doing anything sinful. So he says, I can't take on that liability. It's too much for me. So Boaz, why don't you go ahead if you want to take my right? And they do it before the elders. Everyone sees this. So Boaz redeems the land. He gets Ruth. He's going to take care of Naomi. And we see in Boaz's words in verses 9 and 10 what is going on here. What's he wanting? Okay. He's saying, I want to perpetuate the name of the dead. Skip ahead. That the name of the dead may not be cut off. What is his motivation? Obviously, he loves Ruth. He cares for Naomi. But what is he focusing on? And this gets as close to resurrection in the Old Testament and in ancient Israel as you'll find. Because to have your name cut off, to have no more descendants, for your land to be in someone else's hand, this was not just death. It was eternal destruction, annihilation. You're erased. Your line ends. And basically, this has already happened for Naomi, right? And Boaz is attempting a kind of resurrection in this family. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, this is odd and weird. Let's just skip over this. But look, we do have modern versions of this in some sense, don't we? Why do we work so hard to make a name for ourselves? We want to be relevant. We don't want to be forgotten. We want to matter. We want to make a difference. We want to have an impact. And we do this through our accomplishments, our families, by building a legacy. We don't want to be cut off. I mean, in some ways, it's not too different from biblical times, you know? And the scriptures here want us to appreciate what Boaz is doing at great cost and sacrifice. 
That's, that's what I want you to get from this, this strange story and what's ha- taking place here because you may get lost in the details, but don't forget that's what this is about. And here's the amazing thing. Think about it. Do Elimelech and his sons, Malon and Chilion, do they deserve this? I mean, Elimelech, he led his family away from the promised land, okay? Uh, their boys married Moabite women as though they had no intentions of ever coming back to Israel, I mean, they weren't perfect. They were very imperfect in many ways. But they get a name in Israel. They are not erased. They live on. They are redeemed. They're resurrected. They're forgiven. They're not lost. And you know who doesn't get a name in this story? Did you notice? The near kinsman redeemer. He's forgotten. The name he's given is so-and-so. He's Mr. So-and-so. Literally, that is his name. His name has been redacted, blotted out. You know why? Because he's not interested at all in redeeming Naomi and her family. He's saying, I'm just going to keep the letter of the law. I'm not going to go beyond that. And he is forgotten. And maybe you're thinking, well, Elimelech, Chilean, Malon, they aren't that special, so why should they get this gift? They're pretty average. They're pretty mediocre. And here's the point. They are connected to someone who is very special. This is how redemption works. Elimelech, excuse me, can't do anything about it. They're not actually worthy or necessarily good enough. That's not what matters. But the question is, who is my redeemer? See, Ruth is trying to teach us, even if you're Elimelech or the sons, you can be redeemed. Because when you have the true redeemer, one who is willing to go beyond the letter of God's law to live in Hesed love to redeem and restore, that's your hope, you see? Boaz points us to God's covenant love who is telling us, just as Boaz was a kinsman redeemer to Naomi and Ruth, he's saying, I am going to be your redeemer. Do not be afraid. I will take care of this. I will settle this. And many years later... God sends his one and only son out of Hesed love for us to be our redeemer. His sacrifice will redeem us and restore us if we believe in him. And you know what that means? We're not going to be cut off. Our names are going to be written in the book of life. We will not be forgotten. Not because we deserved it, not because we did something amazing but because of his great love. You see, that's the first point. That's how there's resurrection here for, and redemption for this family. The second thing I want us to see here is redemption for God's people is in play here. Because Ruth and Boaz marry, they have a son named Obed. And notice in verse 17, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wait, we thought the story was about Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, a little drama in this little village. But you know what we've been talking about all along? About King David's great, great parents, grandparents. I mean, this is the big reveal, you know? We've been talking about King David's family here. 
This is not just the story of a little family in Bethlehem. It's the story of how God doesn't forget his people or promise throughout history. And let me explain. You know, because if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, remember it begins telling us this took place in the day of the judges. There was famine. It was a terrible time of suffering, faithlessness. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Ruth is set up against the book of Judges almost as a counterpoint. As everything else is getting worse and worse and worse, the judges are getting worse and worse and worse. Everything is out of control. Here's at least one family in one town that remembers and practices God's hesed love. And what does God do? And from them, he brings the king who truly unites Israel and sets the standard for all future kings. And from David will come the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And we know this is the inference because of all of the ancestors mentioned here. They're talking about Leah, Rachel, Judah, Tamar, Perez. The genealogy, all of this stuff. You know what it's saying? A new start is coming. Something is happening. We're going back to the days when God did amazing things. He's going to restore. He's going to renew. He is coming. And this is why the whole town is gathered at the gate, praising God and blessing Boaz and Ruth in verse 11. Did you notice this? The whole town is there, you know? And in verses 14 to 16, you have the women of the town again who praise God when Obed is born. You know, this is like the end of a musical when the whole cast is on stage and they are all singing the big number. You know what I'm talking about, right? They're all praising God together for his hesed love Redemption, restoration is coming. Because it's trying to teach us when you practice Hesed love, there are incredible repercussions. Change happens. God is at work. God is at work in this one single little family over a generation to bring a good king to redeem the whole nation. And through this line, we're going to see another redemption that comes for the whole world. There are repercussions here. And you look, you look and you begin to see, well, maybe part of why David's the way he is is because he's being raised up in a family that actually has some semblance of an idea of who God is and somehow he picked up on some of this. It doesn't always work out that way, but maybe that's part of the story. And some of you are saying, but wait a second. Wait, that's a couple of generations. It's the great-grandfather of David. Man, are you talking about like 150 years, it's going to get better? Okay? And let me tell you something. Sometimes God's hesed love is a seed in our lives. It's not going to blossom right away. Because all of us feel like God's redemption may be absent in our lives in the hardest moments. When reality is telling us, hey, God's hidden hand has been at work in your suffering, in your tears, and it is the only beginning. It is saying, don't lose hope. God's redemption is coming for messy, weak, and wavering people. Those who felt like, hey, 
maybe I've not done enough things that are right, that it's not good. I've not been good enough. Maybe God's forgotten about me. And this story is saying God's covenant promise is coming because he is faithful. And it may take a little bit of time. And he's telling us as we feel like Naomi at times saying, God has abandoned me. His hand is against me. Don't forget his hesed love is upon you. And that means you can't write yourself off. You can't write anybody else off that is in your life because you're saying, I just don't see anything happening there. And the story is saying, be patient, wait, continue in Hesed love, believing that God is going to show up. Because that's what happened to Naomi. That's what happens in this story. That's what happens to this nation and this town who are feeling the weight of nothing seems to be going right. And God is saying, no, 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 let me point you forward. Something is happening. And everyone comes out and they begin to see and realize, oh my goodness, we didn't notice, but God has been at work. See? There's redemption for the whole nation. It's not just for this one little nuclear family. And the third thing I want us to look at is not just redemption for Elimelech, Chilean, and Malon, not just redemption for God's people, but let's look at redemption for Naomi because this is a section of chapter 4 here. Because if you look at verses 13 to 16, it says this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. You know, God gives conception to Ruth. I mean, think about it. She was barren. She was married for 10 years, never was able to have children. And here, the story is telling us God has given her a son. God is doing something. And this child is the redeemer for Naomi. And it's gonna, this child is going to do something. Look at verse 15. A restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. He shall be to you. A restorer of life. Naomi has come back to life. If you follow the story from chapter 1 to now, she left Israel empty. She, I'm sorry, she returned to Israel empty. She has a grandson now on her lap. This child is going to grow up, care for her, love her, carry on her husband's name. This child is a sign of life, of hope. This child is one that puts a smile back on Naomi's face. She can begin to hope, dream, laugh, trust. This is the power of Hesed love. This is what Naomi is beginning to experience after more than a decade of just intense suffering and thinking, God is against me. She ends up becoming 
essentially caretaker of this child. She cares for this child. She loves her grandson. She is saying, wow, after all these years, life has come back to, into our family. God has been good. But listen, my friends, as wonderful as this is, this redemption is only partial for now. Was everything solved and forgotten for Naomi? No. Was she married? No. What does she still have as part of her life? I'm a widow. Both of my adult sons I've outlived. She has all this family she'll never see again. And yet, God is providing something here. Think of Boaz who's waited all these years maybe to have this marriage. Anyone who's had traumatic, terrible experiences, we all know those things don't get erased and don't go away. The abuse, the betrayal, death, illness, these things don't simply vanish from us. But here's what redemption does. In the middle of pain and loss, we begin to realize those things no longer control us. They begin to be shaped by hesed love that we experience, especially from God. And in the midst of the crucible of suffering, we begin to see hope. We begin to laugh. We begin to see what's possible. It's redemption at work. It's a kind of resurrection that is showing up here. And oh my goodness, I, I'm thinking about Ruth who's saying, hey, after all these years, I finally got pregnant. I finally had a son, you know? I experienced the pain of losing my husband as a young widow and against all odds. I found love. I have a child. And what does she do? We don't see her cradling her child. Of course she did that, you know? It's not like she gave her son to her mother-in-law to adopt or something. That's not what this passage is saying. But what's amazing is she gives this child to her mother-in-law. The image is not Boaz, Naomi, and Obed. Do you notice this? This is Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, and there's this child, Obed. She loves her mother-in-law so much that she would give her firstborn son to redeem her, to allow her to experience the joy of being with this child. It's a familiar story in the Old Testament. This is not a fluke. You know, if you go to Genesis chapter 22, how does Abraham demonstrate his faith? By being willing to offer up Isaac, his firstborn son, to Sarah. How does Israel escape slavery? By the death of the firstborn son of Egypt. Do you remember who anoints David to be king? Samuel, who was Hannah's firstborn son, whom she gave up to the priests to raise. How does God save broken, ungrateful, sinful people? By offering up his only son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in our place. That's how we receive forgiveness, restoration, resurrection to eternal life by faith because he took our place on the cross and rose victoriously from the grave. We were and we are just never enough. 
I mean, but this is God's incredible Hesed love for us, that he would give up his only begotten son for us. And we are being told, if you're part of God's people and you have faith in Christ, okay, this love of God is tenacious. It is never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. It is committed, it is sacrificial. And he's going to stick with you kind of as Ruth has stuck with Naomi. He's going to show you the kind of thing he wants for you through his people, through his son. And he's saying, trust me, I'm going to bring you to a greater place of faith and hope. And one day, he will raise you from the dead. This is the hope we have, you know? This is what Hesed love does. Paul Miller, in his book, A Loving Life, and I'll end with this, he said, Hesed, covenant love, is opposite of the spirit of our age, which says we have to act on our feelings. Hesed says, no, you act on your commitments. The feelings will follow. Love like this is unbalanced, uneven. There is nothing fair about this kind of love. But commitment love lies at the heart of Christianity. It is Jesus' love for us at the cross, and it is to be our love for one another. And friends, my prayer is our congregation would exhibit this kind of love to each other, to our neighbors, to our family, to our coworkers. Imagine what our community would start to look like if rather than saying, hey, I don't like this about you, but I'm going to love you in commitment in this way. Yeah, you're difficult. Yeah, you're hard to be around. But I need you to know I'm going to be committed to you. I mean, there is something so beautiful and redeeming about that, my friend. And God is saying, this is absolutely possible. You know why? Because you've experienced it in Jesus Christ. That gives you the power and the freedom to go to go out and to live for a story bigger than ourselves. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much um, for this incredible book of Ruth, which shows us of your commitment and kindness to us. I pray that you would allow us to take this deep inside our hearts to help us to encounter you, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time. For those of us who are struggling, who've been suffering, help us to take it deep into our bones so that it would sustain us to remind us of your covenant love and how it brings life to places that are so painful and healing and resurrection are possible. Lead us in faith, Lord. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.